Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's the weather's uh, the weather's getting better out there. Just looking out my bedroom window, and uh, getting better for a and, while. Finally, and it's and it's really it's really done wonders for my own uh, spirits. And, and you know, we're we're engaged in a lot of uh, mainly my wife uh, cleaning up you know various rats nests around the house like you know mm-hmm. think cupboards that hadn't been organized bookshelves that haven't been organized so we're we're doing that kind of thing i think a lot of people are uh you're in your house so much uh lots of time for doing that kind of stuff yeah if you feel the inclination it's 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 uh very demotivating all of this stuff too found a lot of people saying you know well i've been home but 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 so Anyway, this is a morning podcast. You can tell this is not a dark beer I'm drinking. This is uh, my morning Joe. And the morning light streaming in the window, and it's a beautiful looking world out there. What I can see of it from here. So buy coffee beans, Bruce. That's all I'm saying. If you <laughs> like your morning Joe, buy some coffee beans. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to be talking hockey, not, not the lockdown or pandemic. We're going to be talking hockey. So sounds like a plan. Let's escape to the world of hockey for a little bit here, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the possibility of Sam Gagne returning to the Oilers. We're going to talk about the Oilers' PK and some of these. The it's really hard to analyze what goes on in a PK, and we'll get into that. But I'm I'm starting to dig through the numbers, and I think um, there's a couple really there's there's one actually really really interesting stat about the power play and the PK that we're going to get into. And where, whereas the, the, I think the strategies of the power player are, are more obvious, at least now that it, to me that I've studied it, but there's, it's still a bit of a mystery on the PK and we're I'm digging into that. We're gonna, mm. also going to talk about the draft, uh, mm-hmm. the trial balloon that was floated this week to have the draft in June, which was quick, quickly shot down because it was such a, such a ridiculous idea. And, and I think you killed it, Bruce, with your post on that. Like the, as soon as they read that post, they just thought we're done. Uh, so we're going to talk about all those things. Let's start with Sam Gagne. Bruce, why, why, why do you? Is there any indication or any indicators that Sam Gagne would be wanted again as a player next year? Where's that coming from? Well, it came from uh, uh, a post that uh, who the heck wrote it now? It's been a couple days since I. Specter, yeah, Mark Specter has got a new <clears throat> a new column about uh, weekly mailbag, Ask Spec or something. Anyway, he uh, he suggested that <clears throat> uh, Gagne might be in the plans of Ken Holland as a front office, um, future front office person. And he, he named no fewer than three sort of, of um, veteran players with Detroit, Dan Cleary, Kirk Maltby, who was the third one. Anyway, guys, long-time Red Wings who wound up working in the front office of that team. And he said, you know, it's kind of, of uh, Holland's MO. Well, of course, he's got lots of players to choose from. Uh, but Sam Gagne fits the bill on a number of fronts in that, you know, he's an older player that's nearing sort of making the decision on the next phase of his career. Uh, a very, very smart guy with, you know, a, a level head about him uh, that, uh, you know, I can see him in in uh, a role of that nature. So let's take a spec at face value on, the, on that point. I looked at it more from the hockey perspective. And 
it's a funny thing, you know, Sam Gagne was traded out of Edmonton in 2014 uh, as a salary cap uh, situation where they moved his salary, took on another one. Uh, they brought him back in 2019 in a salary cap exchange where they got rid of one bad contract, Brian Spooner, bringing Gagne back. They moved him out in 2020 as a salary cap exchange because they had to make room for Andreas and Athanasiu. Got to keep working on that one. And uh, uh, in each case, kind of dollar for dollar was the trade. Uh, but last year, I mean, as a $3 million player, uh, uh, Sam was an overpay. But that contract will be done at the end of this year. And if he wants to come back to the NHL and play hockey again, he's going to take another major haircut. And I would suggest, as expected, that'll be a one-year deal under $1 million. And at that price, you know, that's not the worst player that you can get. It's a guy that uh, that knows Edmonton, that's uh, played here, obviously, twice in the past. Uh, he has uh, pretty decent results. Like, this year he had 12 points in 36 games. And you got to realize none of that was on the first unit power play. Uh, very little time did he spend in the top six of the order. He moved around. He played all three forward positions. And he, uh, uh, his on-ice results were actually very good. In fact, he was the top guy on the Oilers in such categories, as, you know, shot categories. Uh, 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 shot for percentage, shot attempt percentage. And he actually really killed it against uh, middle and lower level competition and he got killed against upper level competition suggesting that yes he's best placed in the bottom six playing against other bottom sixes but in that role he can perform well and if he you know if he's looking around says i want to play one last year one last kick of the can in the nhl and i'm willing to take that haircut in order to keep paying i've already made over 30 million dollars in my career uh, if there's a fit in Edmonton where his wife, as I understand it, is a practicing medical doctor and there's three kids and the orders throw their hat in the ring, uh, that would be a very good fit from his perspective. And I think he's not a bad fit from their perspective. So I see him as being a, a, a pretty uh, uh, pretty reasonable, you know, depth option. But if you pay him as a depth player, I think you could get still value from uh, from that player. I don't. I would not bring him back personally as a mm-hmm. player. Um, based on our own evaluation of him yep. with his grade A scoring chance numbers, they're not. They're just really mediocre. They're they're they're, they're just they're just okay. So um, he was um, he was okay on he was he was okay on the attack. Not so good on defense. Uh, he's what is he thirty? Yep. It's, a, it's a game that's speeding up. He's not that fast. Right. I, I think they could... I, so, And here's who they have on the wing, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nuge, Yamamoto, Cassian, Nigard, Chason, Neil, Archibald, Ennis, Athanasio, Benson. They're getting pretty full there. And I don't... So, so I, no, listen, I, I didn't think Sam Gagne was, was a bad player this year. I thought he was okay. But based on, I, I would, if like, I, I see the choice coming. Like, if you're going to bring in an, a veteran winger, I like Tyler Ennis a lot more than I liked Sam Gagne. And I think, 
I, I'll be surprised if, if he comes back this year. And um, maybe it's time for him to go into management. Mm-hmm. Um, because if that's the path, maybe it's time to make, or he can go play in Europe if that's open to him, if he wants to keep playing. But I just, I think the team has moved on and if teams need to change. They need to keep getting, and the owners, this owners team needs to get faster. I still think that. And Ennis, um, the players they brought in, Ennis, Athensio, starting to give Tyler Benson more looks in the NHL. I would rather those minutes next year go to Tyler Benson, who's in the third year of his ELC, than to Sam Gagne. So where, whereas I, I, he's an old oiler, and I understand the, the, the attachment to the player. He's not someone that I would uh, personally target uh, for a contract next year. The interesting thing about what the one interesting thing finally is, uh, you know, the idea that you'll sign him for a million less than a million. Mm-hmm. I'm going to suggest, <laughs> with the way this the economy is going for the NHL, the minimum salary is going to be well less than a million. If if Bruce, if they can't play before fans next year. Mm-hmm. or half next year, man, this league in terms of its revenues is like, it is going to be like the minimum salary. What's it going to be? 300,000, 250,000. Like we could, we if could. You're have- talking about real dollars. I, I yeah. mean, the CBA says that uh, the minimum is $700,000 and it says that, uh, uh, you know, that's what I call Bettman bucks. Uh, which are then clawed back by escrow, and that's where the that's where the yeah. haircut's going to take place. So you can yeah, sign a guy for seven hundred thousand dollars, Bettman bucks, and he may get four hundred thousand real dollars or something, or you know, uh, significantly less. They're talking about escrow of uh, you know they're they're talking in the range of thirty three percent as, uh, and obviously some of that will, will how how deep of a cut that is will depend on uh, uh, how. Uh, uh, whether or not they're able to pick up this season, and also, you know, next year's revenues, uh, there's a v- every chance that the league as a whole is going to have, you know, there's going to be games played without fans as part of the league at minimum next year. That's going to uh, uh, take a toll. So the the escrow situation that's going to become a very dirty word. It already is among among the players, but uh, uh, ultimately. The deal with the league is half the hockey-related revenues go to the players, and the league keeps the other half. And how the you know how it gets split up among the players is, is I mean, some of it's just pure math. Right? I think the NHL is in a good position to maintain labor peace as far as this goes, because they have it's a very simple formula. Whatever whatever we whatever the league makes, the players get half and the owners get half. Yeah. So it's if everyone's heads around that, it doesn't. So if the pies what is it six billion now or five billion now and in this year well maybe next year it's two billion um and they just divide it up 50 50 so you're right it um the, the cba says one thing and it'll be clawed back on escrow and the, i think the maximum escrow anticipated was 20 percent, if i'm not mistaken but um that might have to be that might have to be negotiated because um of the new economic reality the new normal for the nhl anyway so any thoughts on any rebuttal to what i said on gagne like um well i i have to say you're the first person i've uh, i've heard say it's time to move on and this is from a very limited example of people i got feedback from which is a list of pe- people who care deeply enough to bother saying so some of it was in the comment section of the post some of it was on twitter i got a dm i even got an email from someone every one of them loved sam and said geez i hope they can 
bring him back for one last kick at the can. And I know his fans, and he's got a lot of fans in this town, uh, his fans were pretty disappointed that he got traded at the deadline, the one year that it looked like he was finally going to play a playoff game for Edmonton, and off he goes. And, you know, in a deal, it was a hard-headed business move by... Uh, by Holland in the sense that he had to match the salary and he thought that Athanasio would be a better player. I'm not sure how much better he was, frankly, than uh, Gagne in the little time we saw him. He wasn't I do, any better. I do absolutely agree with you that it's if there's a choice um, for 30-year-old uh, scoring winger veteran uh, component on the team, if they only want one of those guys, it comes down to Ennis versus Gagne. And Ennis maybe has a leg up, and he also has a, you know, he has a history in this town too, where he'd be happy, I think, to sign here and and uh, stick around. Uh, I'm not sure that they wouldn't have room for Tootin, but uh, well, let's just let's just quickly go through the lines. Yeah. Look at looking at the wings. So on the top line, you have let's say you have uh, Nugent Hopkins and Yamamoto with Drysaddle, and let's say you have uh, Cassian and um, Ennis. On the on the top line with McDavid, so then on the th- the third line, your your candidate third fourth line, then your candidates are Negard, Chason who's under contract, Neil who's under contract, Kara who's under contract, Archibald who's under contract, Athanasiu who's under con- contract, and Benson who is under contract. That's a lot of names, right? That's a lot of I just named a lot of wingers there. Did so. I, that's why I'm saying this. I just, I, I'm, I listen. I, I, I love the idea. I think yeah. everyone loves the idea of Sam Gagne coming back. But oh, when yeah, we yeah. actually look at the, already the contracts on the books, I don't see how it's even possible because he's not a center anymore, and there's they're loaded on the wing. So there you go. Well, one way is uh, if in fact there's compliance buyouts and James Neal is gone. That, yes. change, that changes the equation. I think there's a significant possibility that that's how things work out. Yes. So, so then you, who would you rather have back, Neil or Gagne? Like, let's say, they, I guess if they bought out Neil, they couldn't bring him back, right? That's how compliance buyouts right. work. So he'd be gone. Mm-hmm. Even then, I'd be, I'm a little, I just, you know, I, I just think Athanasiu and all these other players are going to get their shot and, Anyway, so I hate to be the outlier on this, especially on something, a player that we all like, and I like uh, to say that, but that's just my... I would say he's a person that we all like, for sure. (laughs) There are are aspects of his game that we've uh, found wanting over the years, but but he's a very easy person to root for. I sure like him, yeah. It was fun to have him come back and play a year in Edmonton, for sure, and it was kind of sad that he was sort of the... The, uh, uh, the, I can't say victim, but, uh, you know, of, of the, of the cap maneuver at the deadline that, that he was the one that got moved out. But in the end, who knows, right? Even if we're going to have playoffs, but it was, uh, I'll just say, I wish him well. And, uh, it was a tough situation to get traded out of Edmonton away from his family and, uh, uh, to the worst team in the league and, Finish out the the season there is a is a tough road to hoe, but you know what? Lots of NHLers have to deal with that reality. Indeed, yeah. And and again, I I, I really like this second little stint with uh, him on the Oilers. I liked him better as a player in, in many ways than I did in the, the first time around. I thought he was just 
he just hustled so hard and had so much grit this time. He was just going for it in a way that uh, there was a level of commitment to the to to playing hockey the right way that wasn't there necessarily the first time because he was young and just learning the game still. And he would have helped the Oilers in the playoffs, I think. And I, I bet you they didn't want to give, get rid of him because I think he, he if if they had you know if he had stayed with the team and if there were playoffs, he he would he's the kind of guy you could have plugged into a game might have scored a big goal. Yeah, well, oh, the big difference from his first time here and the second was that he was no longer playing center, and that's where his defensive yeah. deficiencies are really exposed. Yeah. Let's move along and talk about the Oilers' PK. And first of all, Bruce, last podcast we had a fairly lengthy discussion about um, how's the best rate, way to rate a PK, and uh, I was won over almost instantly by the arguments you made that the best way is to look at net which is the power play goal scored against your penalty kill uh, uh, minus the, the, the shorthanded goals you score for. And when you when you rate, so I went back and I rated the the PKs on uh, on that standard. Let me just find the uh, and and it really made a pretty major difference in how the uh, the PKs were were rated with those great 1980 PKs led by Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry kind of shooting the top for franchise history when you go by net PK percentage. Uh, so there was three, if you go by that, in their years, the 83, 84, 88, 89, and 85, 86 PKs were all the best PKs in the NHL. And in 86, 87, 89, 90, they were the second best in the NHL wow. both those years. So the owners mm-hmm. had the best penalty killing net PK um, in, and the I'm in the future going in the 1980s. And, it, and it's not probably that close like that was a that was a that was a unit that that terror terrorized opposing opposing power plays because of their ability to score goals um when you get past those 1980s groups the next best one and this is not a surprise at all the next best net pk is the 2005-06 pronger jason smith unit and um ranked fourth in the nhl so uh mm-hmm. when we look at this this current unit uh, 2920. They were the it looks like about the tenth best PK in Oilers history, and the 2920 uh, unit. And um, they were fifth overall in the NHL this that's year. Pretty good. So that's very good. And it's a again this huge improvement over last year, yeah. uh, where they were 29th uh, out of uh, 31 net PK and the and the second worst PK in Oilers franchise history in that regard. So they they just had this miraculous almost seemingly miraculous it wasn't a miracle because it actually was just hockey but this incredible rebound turnaround on the pk so thanks bruce for pointing that out i think that was a good use of hockey stats yeah well for for keeping the puck out of the net and by by straight percentage i went from 30th to second so from second worst to second best but because there was no um because there was very little danger of them scoring shorthanded that knocks them down a couple pegs. Like I think they had three shorthanded goals all year, all involving Archibald and Shane. Whereas even last year, Drysaddle, I think he had two or three shorthanded goals on his own. I remember a couple of end-to-end rushes <laughs> he produced uh, pretty spectacular shorties. And of course, there's no comparison. There's no comparison between any other team and the Oilers of the '80s for for doing that. So n- n- the net goals. I am convinced that's the right way to do it, but um, uh, much as I used to pump that in the 80s, 
nowadays you have to say, well, you have to be consistent and use the same thing, even if it knocks your team down a couple of pegs. Top five in the league is pretty darn good. And they did that by giving up nothing. 30, 31 uh, power play goals against compared to 62 last year, like half the number of goals and like 85 or 87 percent the number of games. And it was, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, obviously, you're going to look at the coaching as uh, uh, as being a significant part of that. But uh, I just was, um, well, what did you see as a change in their methodology that uh, that resulted in the in the better defensive record? I think there really was has been a fundamental shift in attitude that Tippett has brought in, and um, where I think that. And I might be wrong about this, but I think that Todd McClellan, because and I remember him talking about this. Todd McClellan was a shot volume coach, so his PK and Hitchcock's PK. I'm going to just talk about them as one. Mm-hmm. Um, they they tended to give up. Um, he, they were worried about shots. They didn't want shots. They, they they wanted to cut down on shots. So what we see this year though is. The Oilers allowed more shots on a rate basis on the PK this year. They the shots the shots went up. Mm-hmm. But what went down was high danger shots. The rate of high danger shots went down this year. Mm-hmm. And we see the same thing on the power play. So on the power play, under McClellan's power play, there was more shots, but there was fewer high danger shots on a rate basis. Tippett's power play, there is less shots but more high danger shots. So on both special teams, we see this focus on shot quality as opposed to shot volume. It's shot, he's, Tippett is all about the high danger areas of the ice and limiting shots from those high danger areas. And he seems to be willing to give up shots on the PK from outside if you're gonna cover off that middle area. And he seems to be not that interested in taking as many shots from the outside on the power play in order to set up those shots from the high danger areas. And these aren't massive statistical differences. They're, 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 I I think they're significant, but they're not massive, but I think they're, it's, it's a change of philosophy and with maybe, maybe it doesn't work with all groups of hockey players, but I think uh, certainly with this power play unit, which has high, such a high amount of skill at work. And with this PK unit, I think, it had an impact on the thinking of some of the key players on the PK, like Chris Russell, maybe to change their style of play a little bit more and not worry so much about going out there to block every shot, but to think about maybe stopping the, the high danger shots, stopping those passes through the diagonal, like the diagonal passes and the crossing passes through. And one of the, we talked about a little bit about Russell's shot blocking numbers. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, what, let, before we get into that, why don't you just, any thoughts on what I've said so far? No, I mean, the data seems clear enough that, the, you know, the, the, the exact same trend on both power play and penalty kill uh, in, in reverse directions. They're, they're, on the power play, shots four went down, high danger shots went up. On the penalty kill, shots against went up, high danger chances went down. And both teams produced better results, obviously in terms of goals, that uh, maybe the focus on uh, high danger chances as opposed to shot volume uh, is uh, uh, something that's paid off. So 
one of the things that, uh, it's really hard to analyze power play penalty kills because the numbers, the individual numbers are hard to come by. Like we try to look, we try to watch the plays and figure out, okay, who made the mistake on the PK? There's no situation in hockey harder to, to, to ascertain who made the mistake because is it the guy who was too aggressive going for the puck? Or was it the player when that guy was too aggressive who didn't make the read and then go to where he was supposed to go? Like they all work as a unit Mm -hmm. and the breakdowns are very subtle and we don't know the strategy necessarily that they're trying to employ. When are they supposed to be aggressive? When are they not supposed to be aggressive? What are they trying to do? It's hard for us to judge. It's the hardest place of all by far to judge uh, where, where, who made the mistake and how big that mistake was. Yeah, well, but by definition, on the on the uh, penalty kill, uh, because you're short, uh, you know, at a man disadvantage, uh, it's not the obvious man on man situation. They're always playing zone defense, and yeah. so it's a little harder to say, well, that guy got beat, you know, because that guy is, you know, he's he's governing his zone as opposed to going a one on one battle against a particular player, and so whereas. The power play, of course, the reverse situation is true, but because you have the puck, you're judging the guys who are making plays on the puck or, you know, screening the goalie. It's a little more clear-cut, and we've always found it's a little straight, straight more straightforward, I was going to say straighter forward, to uh, uh, to evaluate offensive contributions to scoring chances than it is defensive, and that goes oh, yeah. across the board, but penalty kill especially, it's... it's uh, Sometimes it's a real judgment judgment call, and there's a lot of, you know, where we recorded it's a one or a zero, right? But it's a lot of sort of 0.6, uh, 0.4, you're kind of, yeah, which way are you leaning, you know, and, and it's... Um, this is why we I hardly ever write about this data, because I don't really have a lot of faith in our own data. Like, we're doing our best, but, mm-hmm. like, here's a couple examples. Um the puck goes, is the pucks move around the umbrella that's, you know, and, uh, the opposition's moving it around and it goes out to the, the, the uh, shooter on the half wall. Let's call him Ovechkin. Now, now is it Russell's fault if, if he um, doesn't, if that shot gets through, uh, is that his fault or is he, was he, was he supposed to maybe collapse in and help out in front of the net? What's his job there? Or the puck goes down low to the player, right beside the net, pass down low to the player, and there's a defenseman who's kind of covering both the player with the puck right. and the player down low, kind of in between them. Well, if that player gets the puck down low, then kind of circles out and gets a good chance in front of the net. Was it really that guy's fault uh, because he was too close to the shooter? Or maybe it was some other guy's fault uh, that he had to go cover that shooter because someone else had allowed to clean a pass and that shooter was going to get a great shot. It's really complicated and it's hard to do. So... Um, so, but here's one of the things we did. I did notice from is Chris Russell's shot blocking totals. Mm-hmm. So he's really noted for the shot block. He's blocked yep. more shots than any other defenseman in the NHL since he came to the Oilers, and he's also yep. got the highest rate of shot blocks at all strength of any right. of any defenseman. So la, uh, it, when the Oilers had a crappy power, penalty kill in 2018-19, Russell blocked a lot of shots that year. He blocked um, for every 60 minutes of PK time, he blocked 14. Wow. This year. He blocked uh, eight for mm-hmm. every 60 minutes. That's a huge, that's a really massive drop. So you might think, well, the orders that they're, they're putting less emphasis on shock blocking, but that's not the case because the other defensemen, Nurse, Larson, and Clefbaum, their shot blocking numbers all went up year to year. So as Russell was going down, they are going up. So it's really hard to, 
to know what to make of that, it, other than maybe this, that they were, maybe they're asking for a more balanced approach from all of the defensemen. Yeah. And what Russell was doing, and, and I think, I think we, we, I think this is real. I think we saw this is that he was going less for that to stop all the shots, which is what was maybe the plan was before. Like, we don't want shots, shots from anywhere, block them all to man. You cannot allow that diagonal pass. You can't allow that crossing pass. That's your number one focus, Chris Russell. And because he is such a uh, responsible defensive player, he, I think he'd take that kind of message to heart. So again, I'm just speculating about all this. I don't know if any of this is true. But that's what I think might have been happening with Russell, where he had less of an emphasis on the sh- blocking the shot, more of an emphasis on blocking the passing lanes. Whereas the other defensemen, maybe they maybe they needed to be a bit more aggressive in shot blocking because shot blocking is really important on the PK, mm-hmm. and maybe they needed to amp it up um, in terms of getting in front of pucks. I, I'm just guessing there. Right? Any, any thoughts yourself, Bruce, on that? Well, Russell, I mean, his overall shot blocking uh, average went went down fairly significantly this year. Yeah. Uh, a little bit surprising that such a, uh, a substantial, I mean, I'm sure if we broke down all the numbers, we'd find even strength went down a little and the PK went down a lot. I wonder how much of it is a sample size issue. Uh, that said, I mean, the guys pretty consistently blocked eight, nine shots per 60 minutes uh, throughout his time in Edmonton. This year it was down uh, about six and a half. So significantly less, and his ice time went down. Uh, on the penalty kill, though, his ice time didn't go down. In fact, he was uh, what I considered the first unit playing with Clefbaum. Yeah. And he actually flipped and played his old right side position on the penalty kill. And the even strength, they tried as much as possible to put him on the left side. Well, on the on the penalty kill, dumping the puck out to center is a successful play. So uh, having him on, uh, you know... But they wanted to have their best defenders out there, and that included three lefties while well, he was the guy uh, for for that scenario to play on his wrong side. Uh, but it did seem to be somewhat a change of style. Like, I was noticing throughout the season, I thought, you know, Russell, like, Clefbaum's shot blocking totals was just ramping up, and, and he was just leaving Russell in the dirt. And every other year, Russell would just pull away from the other orders and basically pull away from the rest of the league. It was just such a central part of his game that uh, whether it was uh, something that he, he did, was coached to do, whether the new uh, defensive coach, whether the whether the um, head coach, whether the you know the special teams coaching or, or whatever, or just, and like I say, the sample size is small enough that uh, maybe two or three block shots credited in there would make... Uh, a difference in that rate, but uh, uh, I did. To me, it looked like his his uh, he kept his feet more. I saw fewer starfish out of him this year. You know, the diving, heroic, defensive, sliding play once in a while, but uh, but not as common a, a mechanism as uh, as he's done in the past. So, well, I, I'm going to suggest this was a more disciplined PK. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things you they scored ten PK goals, Bruce, the year before. Um, mm-hmm. Shorties. They scored shorties. Mm-hmm. Ten, 10 shorties. Uh, 2018-19 when they had such a terrible PK. This year they scored three. And um, I, I'm going to say that one of the things was like, it's like guys, just forget about the whole scoring goals thing on the PK. We need you forwards to th- focus on one thing. And that's stopping these diagonal passes down low across the ice. 
you know, allow them to go to the outside and take a shot, leave that lane open. Do not allow them to, uh, to make that diagonal cross scene pass through, through you. And, um, Maybe don't be so quite so aggressive. I mean, the way you get shorthanded goals on the PK is by crowding that defenseman and stripping the puck off him, right? And going. That's one of the main ways. And maybe the maybe the message was forget about that. That's that's not what we want you to do when you're out there. We want you to to, to cross uh, to stop that crossing pass down low. Because because this is the one thing I think we can say with certainty is there was far fewer of those kinds of plays. The cross scene pass, and it was often a, a double whammy it, when they were so bad. It would be like from the defenseman to the one side, and then from the one side to the other, and then goal, goal for the yeah. power play goal. And we didn't, we saw that play maybe two or whereas we probably saw like that, that that play ten or fifteen or twenty times once the year before. Once a week. Yeah, we saw it. We saw it three, four, five times uh, this year. Hardly ever, and um, so that's how you cut down on high danger chances from the slot is by taking away that pass. And uh, that was a huge focus. I saw them good sticks and good positioning far more this year. So good for the Oilers. Yeah. Special teams was absolutely mammoth and both, both special teams got the job done. I also, one last with just, I think the goalies, um, their save percentage in, was way better on the penalty. I think, Sometimes in the past, they, you know, the penalty kill would be all right, and then the goalie let in a bad goal. It just yeah. drives you nuts. I don't think there was too many. We look at grade B power play goals against. I bet you that went down. It went down significantly from, uh, I think it was like 17 to 3. Oh, yeah, there you go. So I'm just not like, maybe more drive, like 13 to 3. Used to um, drive, drive me nuts. You know, the goalie had let in a shot from the, from the sidewall or something, and... I mean, there's no blaming the players. It's just a bad goal, right? Now, Bruce, like about 10 years ago, what we would have heard if I had said these numbers about shot volume and shot quality, we would have heard from the kind of the shot volume camp, like, Mm -hmm. well, this is just, this is unsustainable. This is all puck luck. Mm -hmm. And um, so here's what I, I'll tell you what I I think about that. I think that um, maybe on the PK, a lot of it isn't sustainable. Maybe, maybe there was some puck luck. Um, on the PK here. I'm not going to rule that out. I think that might be one of the factors, especially on the PK. On the power play, like, are they going to be as, you know, shooting, what did they shoot? Like 20% this year? Are they going to keep shooting at that forever? Let's see. No. Uh, they're not going to get, maybe not quite that good, but Bruce, we saw in the 1980s a group of player comes, group of superstar players come together and absolutely crush it on the power play year in, year out, year in, year out. Well, we have Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Oscar Kleffbaum. They're going to be joined by Kyrie Yamamoto, Evan Bouchard, Ethan Bear. Bruce, I think this is the success. The, the idea that the Oilers could be in the top two or three on the power play for the next five years, that sounds like a sustainable notion to me. So I think, yeah, I however many shots they generate, I think they're going to be able to continue to generate high danger shots on an ongoing basis going forward. And that's going to lead to a lot of goals. Now they might get bad puck luck and uh, at some point and, and stop scoring a bit, but man, this is not for long. This, no, this unit it's just too much. There's just too much there unless, you know, unless they lose players to injury or whatever, but uh, there there's, 
there's too many weapons uh, and the opposition's, and of course, in the same boat. They can't really go man to man against uh, a, a four on five. So they got, you know, they got to leave. Uh, they got to be vulnerable somewhere. And this now that the power plays unlocked McDavid to uh, uh, move a little more freely around the zone uh, and Drysaddle too, to to a lesser extent, it, it just creates a, a a myriad of problems for the defensive team and goalie. Uh, what do you what do you think about the PK and puck luck? What's your take on that? I th- I think yeah, both goalies being over 900. I'm not sure I'm counting on that happening again next year. Uh, so I would expect them to uh, regress some, but uh, you want to be in the ideally you want to be in the top 10 in both. Ideally you want to be in the top 10 of as many major categories as you possibly can be. And uh, if you're you know if you're in the top 10 of a lot of categories, you don't have to totally rely on uh, on a few to be uh, otherworldly. Be nice to be in the top ten or even the top half of the league at even strength. That would really solve some problems. But uh, on the special special teams, uh, I think the power play is, as you say, uh, definitely got the potential to be top five for quite a while, and you know maybe top three or better. You know, but there there uh, there's a lot of history of teams that have a great power play of just keeping it year over year. That the the power play. I mean, Washington. How long have they had a top-notch power play you know and and when you have the even though you know what the weapon is and 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 you know what it is that they're trying to do good luck stopping it right if they execute they got the extra man they got the puck and they got it in your zone uh you know here here's your you know here's your uh uh, here's your mission (laughs) to quote the cowboy junkies you can always see it coming but you can never stop it (laughs) um let's talk bruce about the uh nhl's idea (laughs) trial balloon as gary bettman eventually called it i believe Mm -hmm. uh of having the draft in june and you pointed out the obvious flaws in it and man when i read Mm -hmm. your uh piece it's Mm -hmm. like that how could you maybe they wanted to try to create some excitement in june about the league because there's lots of excitement right now about the nfl draft Mm-hmm. Like people are so happy, you know, I, there's just all this happy talk about it. Maybe they wanted to have that going on, but there's just, why can't they do it? Well, the one reason why they could do it and why they, it's not a bad idea to be planning for it is in the eventuality that they don't pick up hockey. And then uh, that if the 1920 season gets abandoned, then the 2021 season, the rhythm of the 2021 season starts with the draft. And if there's a decision reached, you know, say mid-June that, nope, this isn't going to work. It's like, you know, uh, the Folk Fest and, the, and the, the Fringe and the Stampede all already been abandoned well in advance. Well, that I think their, uh, their original thinking may have been, let's have a two-pronged thing. We have this set of plans if we don't resume and this set if we do resume. And there was no way they were ever going to do the draft in the middle of the season. So I thought maybe this draft, they're they're setting up for June just in the eventuality that um, they come to the conclusion, you know, sometime in June that, nope, this is just not a workable thing to ever finish this season. So let's get going on the the next year. Uh, 
but it sounds more and more like they're they're heavily leaning towards picking up and ending the 2019-20 season in some fashion. And if they do, the draft has has to be, in my opinion, after that season is over, because there's just too many variables at play that uh, uh, they don't know, of course, the order the teams are going to finish in. So the draft order is completely dependent on that, and it's also dependent on playoff results. Uh, they don't know. Uh, there's so many conditional draft picks out there. There are six first-round picks that are uh, potentially going to get traded this year based on what happens in the remainder of the regular season and the playoffs. Well, how do you have a draft uh, if the remainder of the regular season and the playoffs are still going to be held at some point in the future? Then you have the matter of the draft often featuring trades of draft picks for players and oftentimes those trades are kind of the reverse of what you see at the trade deadline. You see, uh, say, a team like Ottawa Senators that's collected a ton of draft choices and thinking, well, we can do a, we can speed up our rebuild by trading draft picks for players from from uh, uh, better teams that are move, looking to move on from players. Uh, for instance, last year, J.T. Miller from Tampa Bay to Vancouver for a draft pick. Well. Who's going to make that trade? Do you think Tampa would have made that trade at the trade deadline last year? Well, no, of course not. They wanted J.T. Miller for the playoffs. They they waited till the draft, and they traded him then, and they got a pick for him. Well, if the playoffs are after the draft, none of the teams that are in contention are going to be looking to move away from players and doing a rebuilding. like that. that it, it's the whole point of trading at the draft is it is the offseason. And if you stick the draft in the middle of the season, all of that, all, all, the, the whole rationale of the thing changes drastically. It'd be like having a second trade deadline as opposed to having an off-season, uh, you know, uh, trading pot that they uh, typically have at the draft. So a lot of headaches. And like I say, the only thing in favor of a June draft is only if they know that they're already looking ahead to 2021 and that this season has been abandoned. So that's why I thought maybe, you know, they're not ruling anything out, but there's no, if this happens, this won't happen. But until we know, uh, we'll we'll just proceed ahead with both plans. But already Alan Walsh, uh, well, uh, Darren Drager says doubtful uh, NHL will hold a draft in June. And Alan Walsh, the player agent, says looks like a June draft is, uh, or NHL, June NHL draft is now off the table. Trial balloon popped. Most GMs against it, and it was widely considered a bad idea, presumably for the reasons just mentioned. Yeah. That JT Miller trade really worked out for Vancouver in the short term. It like, did. It was a good like, trade. I, I can't speak. I don't even know what they gave up. Was it a first? Was it a first? It was a, well, it was a conditional first. Uh, the condition being if they make the playoffs. Right now, Vancouver is sitting in a playoff position if you go by points possession. Uh, percentage, but not if you go by points. I think I got it right. Anyway, they they're right on the cusps. So if they were to hold a draft uh, in June, would the condition be in effect or not? Not in effect. And there's a, there's a whole lot of those uh, yeah Schro- Schrodinger's draft picks. <laughs> that, that, Seventy-two uh, points in sixty-nine games. Good for him. Yeah, no, he's he's been excellent. And Tampa, you know, they had to they had to move cap, and so they stockpiled a draft choice, and then they traded the pick. The the pick actually went to New Jersey in the Blake Coleman trade, potentially. So uh, 
they didn't keep the pick, but what they did was they moved on from uh, J.T. Miller and they got Blake Coleman, who was a lot cheaper player, uh, because of fit their salary structure better. Like there's a lot of moving pieces in play, and and uh, the natural the natural rhythm of the game is you know like things go in a, in a sequence for a logical reason. And if you were to disrupt that sequence by having the draft at the regular time, but the playoffs at an irregular time, then you're creating all kinds of headaches. Yeah, it was migraine yeah. headaches. Yeah, it quickly became, quickly became apparent just probably talking about that. So, alrighty. Well, I think, um, what's your next post, Bruce? What are you working on? Uh, I'm going to do a part three on Dave Tippett. Uh, I've I've taken the time, which obviously we have in abundance, to do a deeper dive than usual on the GM and coaching this year. I did a five-part, 10,000-word uh, magnum opus on uh, Ken Holland. Uh, I won't be doing an, as much depth on uh, Tippett because I'm more an armchair GM than an armchair coach, to be frank. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in... in uh, deployment of players and some of the things that can can be measured uh and we'll look at that a little bit more and the last post i wrote on him was specific to the one major uh move he made at exactly mid-season when he put leon drysettle in the middle split up uh mcdavid and and uh uh drysettle and 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 changed his his um Axis of power, I think I expressed this before, from horizontal to vertical and made himself, uh, you know, a two-line team at least. And uh, flipping Drysaddle and McDavid, or Drysaddle and Nugent Hopkins and throwing the rookie on the right wing. Like, there was a lot going on in that in that one move. And it paid off in spades. Uh, so I looked, I, I did an in-depth look at that. I'll do a much shallower Look at the at just the general deployment of players, and uh, uh, how he how he used and how he got value out of his younger players, and how you know how how he made the pieces fit at least to the degree that they did. I mean, uh, we look at this as being a successful team. They won 37 out of 71 games, which is great for an Oilers team, but it's you know in the middle, just above middle of the pack. So it, not everything worked, uh, but. Uh, I'm viewing, uh, as with Ken Holland, as I look deeper into uh, Dave Tippett, I'm coming away thinking, yeah, this is a guy who knows what he's doing and uh, uh, he's getting results based on, you know, him, you know, he's an experienced guy. He's got, uh, uh, he got a few tricks up his sleeve and he's, uh, he's uh, passed his first test and that's for sure. I'm going to keep digging into the par, the penalty kill. Uh, mm-hmm. My next post will be on uh, the uh, mistakes that we did count up, you know, our, right. um, and trying to see if there's anything we can glean out of that. And I think again, there is. There's going to be something, and I probably, I'll probably, or we'll probably look at Gaytan Haas. Maybe I'll do it, mm-hmm. or he'll do it going forward. All right, Bruce. Thanks for talking today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime. And in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.